Fear stops us from achieving our true greatness. Are you a professional woman who is feeling stuck, unmotivated, or burned out? Are you worried about your wellness? Are you letting fear stop you from crushing your goals? If you answered yes to any or all of these, then this is the podcast for you. Dr. Charmaine Gregory, night shift emergency physician, burnout thriver, and wellness champion, along with everyday heroes just like you, will explore how to face fear in our lives and emerge victoriously. Dr. Gregory here. Did you know that I'm on YouTube as well? You can find me at Charmaine Gregory, MD. See you there. Here. Hello, 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 Fearless Freedom family. It is Dr. G, and we are here this week with a amazing, amazing, amazing lady. And her name is Milagros Phillips. And she is going to tell you all about what she's up to and who she is. Thank you so much, Dr. G, for inviting me to be on your podcast. Um, yeah, so um, I do healing racism work, have been doing it for a very long time, for um, over 35 years, and um, have written five books. Um, my fourth book, um, which is the one that's out right now, is called Cracking the Healer's Code, A Prescription for Healing Racism and Finding Wholeness. And then um, the fifth book is actually the uh, the journal that goes with cracking the healer's code. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we are very interested in backstories. Okay, so <laughs> we are always curious as to how does one get down a path like yours, for example, and then was there any fear involved in that path? A lot of fear. And it was not anything I was ever going to do with my life. I actually got my calling on the day that Dr. King died. And um, I always tell this story because I, I locked myself in the bathroom to cry because I was so upset over what had just happened. My father and I were watching TV. I don't even remember what we were watching, but they interrupted it to say that he had been first that he had been shot. And then they interrupted again to say that he had passed away. And, and when they said that he had passed away, I just, I, I remember just getting up and it was like, I was numb. You know, I, I got up kind of like a zombie and, and I remember walking into the bathroom and then just sobbing my eyes out. I just kind of fell to the floor behind the door. And I was in the bathroom for so long that my father came and knocked on the door a few times to ask if I was all right. And I kept saying, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, you know? And, um, and I, I literally heard a voice that said, you're to continue the work. I didn't know what that meant. Um, we had just been in the country for three years. I came um, when I was 10 years old from the Dominican Republic and I had no idea what that meant. All I knew was they just killed a man for doing that. So not doing it. That's, that's just, right, right. Well, I'm, I'm 13, <laughs> but I'm smart enough to know that I'm not doing that, okay? Right. So, um, so it took a really long time. And what's interesting for me and what's, what's probably a little different for me around this work is that because I was never, ever, ever going to do race work, I had all these other things that I was interested in. First of all, I'm an artist. I, I paint, 
Um, I trained as a singer because I wanted to be an opera singer. And I, got, I did all these things with my life, anything that had nothing to do with what, you know, like I thought had nothing to do with racism, right? And so, uh, so I just, you know, um, had completely divorced myself from it. But, but there were things that had happened in my life that helped me to realize that I needed healing. And so I started going to counseling. And I remember I had one counselor who was very, very good. I, I actually started going to counseling because I was a military spouse and I was married to a man who was alcoholic. And so, um, so I, I was smart enough to realize I'm not well here. <laughs> Never mind him, I'm not well, you know, and I'm, I'm raising children and so on. And so I had a counselor who happened to be very good. Um, he sort of got what was going on with me. He said, well, you know, the first five years of your marriage, you were in shock, you know? So, uh, so he was just really good. But being in the military, he moved away. And, okay. and then I went through a series of, of counselors and we were living in the Pacific Northwest at the time, we were in Washington state. And I remember going through a series of counselors who were young white women. And by the time I got to the third one, I remember going in and it had been a particularly difficult week that week uh, in our household. And I was just desperate to, you know, I couldn't wait for my appointment, right? So I show up, I have this young woman and it was my second time with her. And I remember, I don't remember what I said to her, but I remember thinking, I'm screwed. Nobody oh, no. can help. Yeah, oh, no. I, I remember thinking, I lived more in this past week than this young woman has lived all her life. She cannot help me. Do you know what I mean? Like I was just like- She doesn't have the experience in order to do that. Yeah. Got yeah, it. I was just in, and, you know, and I was aware enough that my race also added to the problem. By that, I mean that there were things that she just had no consciousness of. Sure, yeah. That were part of the problem, you know? Right. So, anyway, bottom line is, I, I remember um, at that time, I had become a Tupperware lady because I wanted to be home with my children during the day and, you know, the whole thing, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and I remember I had this wonderful distributor. I mean, we remained friends over the years and she passed away a couple of years and we were still friends, right? Aww. But um, I remember her always saying, if it's, to, if it's to be, it's up to me. That was one of, of her big lines, right? And so... Um, at that point, I realized if I'm going to get better, it's up to me. So I started looking into healing. You know, how does a person heal? How do you manifest your own reality? Uh, what is meditation? Like I just, you know, like, and so I started reading and just, just ingesting everything and anything that I could ingest around healing. What is the healing process? How do people heal? Um, you know, and it was all, I had nothing to do with race, right? Because it was all about, I need to heal my heart because of all the things that I've been going through. Fast forward, um, I decided to go back to school and get a second degree, and I had to take a class on diversity. And I remember what happened in that room stayed with me for the rest of my life. So it was a, a young white woman who was leading the course. And she was doing a nice job until she showed 
an old episode of an old Oprah Winfrey show where Oprah did the blue eye, brown eye experiment that was done by Jane Elliott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It divided the classroom in half. I mean, wow. it, it was so intense. You could cut the tension with a knife. It was- That's a that pretty bad. intense experiment. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, uh, you know, take the shards of the shards of uh, wood or whatever that thing is off the eyes kind of deal. Yeah. 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 The thing is that we weren't doing the experiment. We were just watching the Oprah Winfrey. I know, but it has the impact. It still has that impact, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It has a, it's pretty powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. 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 And, And I remember one particular young man had a really hard time with it. It was a, he was a, a blue eyed, blonde, curly haired man. And he kept pacing back and forth in the back of the room. I mean, that's how intense it was for him. Um, and, and, and it was almost like he was having, as I think back on it now, because I have more awareness now, it's almost like he was having a, um, like an anxiety attack, just watching this show. Then she went into conversation. And, you know, and yeah, so, so it was intense. And I remember going home and saying to my husband at the time, what was shared in that room was really needed. I said, but everybody in that room left wounded. Of course, because you didn't process it. You had no way to to like process that. Exactly. Like you open a wound and then you just like leave it open. You don't put any antiseptic. You don't put any kind of like closure on it like it's yep. it's 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 dangerous actually it is dangerous it is it's, it's absolutely dangerous which is why I do my work the way that I do it because I remember going home and I said to him people need this information what was shared in that room was powerful and people need it I said but there must be a way to do that that leaves people empowered rather than leaving them wounded and it was almost like my spirit was listening and going okay she's ready <laughs> and so then that began a journey because my thesis ended up being about diversity. And so I'm doing all this research and I'm learning all this stuff. But interestingly enough, before any of this, right, my ex-husband thought it was, or my husband at the time, thought it was a really good idea to read to me at night, just before we went to sleep, from the slave narratives. Who does that? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Okay. Like, now, is it because, <laughs> did he do this? You think perhaps he might've done this because he wanted to make sure that you were aware of the African-American slavery experience because you are from another country. I mean, is that why? I'm just wondering. It was, yeah, no, it, which is a great question. But no, there were slaves where I came from. In fact, we had an avocado tree in the backyard, huge avocado tree, put out those big avocados. When I came to this country and I saw those little avocados, I said to my sister, oh, wow, they they don't let them mature. They just pick them, huh? She said, no, that's the size they are here. Because where I came from, we have big avocados, Yes, yes, yes. So we have this huge avocado in the back tree. And, And my mother's best friend, her backyard and our backyard abutted each other, right? And so my mother at night would take shortcut to her best friend's house through the backyard. And she would take me with her because the the kids there, we all played together and stuff. And I remember walking in that backyard and whenever my mother went in the backyard at night, and I love my avocado tree, okay? During the day, we were best friends. But at night, 
I would walk across the yard tightly holding onto my mother with my eyes closed because I just knew that if I opened up my eyes, I could see slaves hanging on that tree. It was rumored that they had hung slaves on that tree. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that the first enslaved Africans that were brought into the new world were brought in 1509 to Quisqueya, which is the original name of La Española, which is now known as the Dominican Republic. So it was the first place that, that the Spaniards took the Africans to enslave them to work in the sugarcane plantations. So it was a hundred years before the Mayflower ever landed in the continental USA or any of the slave ships started to land here. So, so we had this history of slavery and I had learned about slavery as a little girl in school in the DR, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, no, he, he was just like, can you believe this? You know, it was that kind of thing. And it was like night after, I'm like, okay, I'm not interested. Like, can you stop? Like, you know, I don't want to hear it, you know? And of course, those are the first places I went to when I was doing research. Of course, of, of course. Know, <laughs> oh yeah, because it's like, oh, I already, I already know this stuff, right? And so, um, but it was just, I mean, it was, it was really quite a journey. And, and I'm so grateful that, you know, things happened the way they did. Because the first thing I learned was about healing and transformation. And I always joke that at some point, because I was doing all this healing transformation work because I was trying to figure out my own heart, right? Um, that because I'd done so much of it at one point, I became healthy enough to realize that I needed healing. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, yeah. You gotta be conscious enough when to you clean When you start it. really looking in the mirror, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, um, so what I do with my work is I walk people through that icky, horrible, horrific history that starts way back in the 1400s with the Europeans and blah blah blah, and what was happening in Europe and all that led to, you know, the the uh, the taking over of the African continent, at least the Western part of the African con continent, and then shipping human beings to be, to work in these, you know, which nobody calls them that, but it's the truth. These were labor camps where they were bringing people, you know, they were, cre they were creating labor camps. So anyway, um, so I walk people through that history because a lot of what people want to do is they want to gloss over it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to pretend it, it never happened. It didn't exist. Or like, it's not affecting us today. You know mm. what I mean? Like, it's, come mm. on now, you know? <laughs> and so, so there's no way if we're going to do healing, like I always tell people, if you go to the doctor because you need healing because something's wrong, one of the first things they ask you for is your medical history. And your medical history is literally the history of your ancestors. What happened to them to understand what's happening to you, to give you something to make things better for the future, right? And so that's what the work is. And, and so, so it's important for me that people walk through that history because what it also does is it awakens you to the incredible courage that people had to continue to survive under such amazingly horrific circumstances. Oh, yes. So the first thing it does is it helps you to own your power because you came from these people, right? And, mm -hmm. and they were extraordinary in the ways that they could do this. So um, so we do that. And I have a, a two-day program that I've been doing now for 20 years that okay. is 
incredibly healing for people. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. They always say they never see race the same way again because they get context, you know, and what context allows you to do is it helps you to put things in place and it helps you to understand the why of the behaviors and all the things that people have done, right? Mm-hmm. And so the first day we do the history, we, we break it down, we, we peel, we begin to peel away the layers. And then on the second day, we do what I call the solve, right? Which is, you know, going in and walking people through the healing process. So my book, Cracking the Healer's Code, A Prescription for Healing Racism and Finding Wholeness, is based on that 20 years of work and my 35 years of experience doing this work. And so what it does is it gives people context and then it walks them through a uh, it, it breaks down what racism is, you know, how it's institutional, systemic, internalized, personal and interpersonal, how we keep trying to solve it from the interpersonal perspective, when in reality, it's all of these, all of the above, right? And so we need to understand all of the above if we're truly going to change things and do things differently. And then on day two, we walk through that, that path of healing and what that looks like, feels like, tastes like. Um, And now I have a program that starts uh, in January of of 2022, which is actually a 15 week program that then takes the people who have been through the two day or at the very least read my book and walks them through that healing process one by one, helps them to understand where racism lives in their body, why it lives where it lives. For some people, it's their head, some is their throat, some is their stomach, blah, blah, blah. And how that is related to illnesses in their, in their lineage and in their family. And really understanding what are some of the things that they need to do to change things within themselves so that their world begins to change. And so, so it really does. And then there are breathing exercises at the end of the book. There are all kinds of things to help people get better, get better. No, that's, that's fantastic. It's interesting because as you mentioned, like, you know, the fact that the focus is always on the interpersonal mainly and that there are so many other components. It just reminds me of burnout because, um, you know, burnout is very similar because I mean, obviously like I'm not comparing racism to burnout like I don't think they're like on the same page but you know if you look at a construct like how with with racism there are multiple components that are interplaying and it's not just the individual that is the you know the person that's the individuals are at the um the end of it and they are the ones that are impacted by it the most like on like a face-to-face kind of basis but you know, the things that keep it in play are not the interpersonal things. It is the institutional constructs that have been put into place that will allow for continued division amongst us. Um, It is the societal things, the laws, you know, that are in place. I mean, it is so many things that have a great impact on the persons involved, but is not it's not, it's not solely their control. It's actually above their control and is affecting them. And so the same thing with burnout, because burnout is, you know, from the professional standpoint, like 
looking at it as um, from medicine, you know, oftentimes there is a focus on the physician themselves and they'll be like, well, you know, you just need to do yoga or you just need to meditate or you just need to go fix yourself, right? Like this is the shaming that happens, right? How could you possibly not be able to get over something that is difficult when you have survived, you have quote unquote thrived. I mean, they think we have thrived, but it's not always the case through training. That's pretty brutal. So you should be able to fix yourself here too. Like, you know, don't, don't show that you're weak. Don't show that you are having a problem because that is not what a physician does. Like you, no matter what, no sleep, no, um, no bathroom breaks, no nothing as you are learning your craft, like this should be nothing to you to also overcome. Right. And so not taking to account the fact that the ethos or the, um, the culture of the organization is huge because if you are in a situation where the place is malignant, the place does not ever think about how can we, you know, diminish or not diminish, how can we, how can we deal with the everyday traumas that the staff is facing and how can we reconcile that? How can we get them the help that they need on the spot? And then long-term, you know, how can we have stops where something is happening that is affecting everybody, we stop the program and we assess situation and then we reset. Like if that's not in place or if there aren't systems in place that allow for the people who are providing the care to have an ease of practice, then that also will lead to burnout. So, you know, it's, 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 it's funny. And, and as you describe this, that's, that was what I was thinking about. And, you know, why is it that these things that affect us on the personal level, you know, we get blamed for that. You know, you get blamed for having melanated skin. You get blamed for that. And it's, it's, it's such a, a fascinating thing. You know, it's like in our households, we joke about something and there's a lot of truth to this joke. And we say, you know what? Everybody wants to, everybody wants to be like a black person, but nobody wants to ever be black. They want to do all the things we do. They want to listen to the music. They want to wear the clothes. They want to, you know, do the dances. They want everything that we have, but they don't want to be us. And why don't they want to be us? Because we are amazing, you know? Yeah. And why well, don't they want to be know. us? They would they want to be us because of what happens to us yeah. through the, you know, like on, on the levels that you mentioned, they don't want to have to deal with, you know, going to get a mortgage and being charged the highest rates because of what you look like. They don't want to be where we're trying to sell our house. And if we have, and, and, and this is, this is another thing that I thought was quite fascinating because they, they had a, a couple in Florida and the husband is Caucasian and the wife is, is, is um, African-American. And they had a very nice house in a very nice neighborhood. And they went to go sell their house. And literally when they showed the house with the wife and the children's pictures up, they did not get offers in that area. As soon as they took away their pictures, they got offers. And so it's like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, if you're not in the shoes, 
and you don't like know it. Like, so her husband was blown away. He was just like, what the heck is happening here? You know what I mean? Like he saw like how she gets treated differently. He saw like how his children are treated differently, but it's sometimes it's not until you actually see the machine in process that it, that it actually hits home for you. Right. Because it's, it, there is a, and, and, and I talk with my Caucasian friends about this all the time. I'm like, there is a, there is like a, there are like two, two universes, two dimensions that are, that are at play here. There's a dimension where you may never come in contact with, with the ills of our society because of what you look like. Right. Or there's the dimension where you see it happening to people that you know, and then you become aware of it. And then you start seeing it all the time. And it's like, that's the woke phase, right? That's when you're, when you're Caucasian or you're, you're Asian or whatever. And you realize that, you know, this is what the experience is for melanated people. And then you become woke. But for the, for the person that's melanated, this is, this is what you're born with. This is what you live with every single day. And it is something that if you're not made aware of it, like, so for example, if you're in a situation where you're raised by people who are not woke and you're melanated, that poses a big problem for you ultimately. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's almost like necessary for you if you're not melanated to become woke, not just for yourself, your own like ability to navigate a society and do so in a great and powerful way, right? Because you are at, you're in a situation where you can actually, your voice can actually make a difference, right? And I think that was what was realized by a lot of Caucasians during the whole Black Lives Matter last year. I mean, they just, they were woken up. They really were. And that's why when people don't recognize what's happening and they think that, you know, African-Americans are just angry people, we're not angry people, <laughs> not angry. And, you know, I understand that the Caucasian race is not a monolith, which is why you should understand that African-Americans or black people in general, right? Because I'm originally not from the United States, but, you know, it's like, we are not a monolith. We sing opera. We like, you know, we do all the things. And so it's, it's, it's really kind of disturbing that you don't take a few moments just to learn about the people that you live with, that you imitate, that you do all these things for, but you never want to be. So that, you know, we had some really good conversations, friends of mine and I, and, you know, I really feel like it was absolutely, I hate that it came to a point where it was super explosive last year. And, you know, the things that happened happened, but I feel like it was necessary for things that were happening for a long time to come to light because it's like unrealistic to live in a society and coexist with another population of people and to never realize that you have a foot on their neck all the time, like all the time, all the time. And then people ask me like, so it must be different for you because you're a doctor. I'm like, well, it's not right. Because I still look like this, <laughs> right? I cannot, I cannot like assimilate into the Caucasian race. Cause I have 
African features. Like there's just no way, you know? And so as a result of that, people see me and the first thing that they think is this is a black person. And then you get a lot. And this is something I was talking about with um, some medical students the other day. It's like, there is a lot of, there's not necessarily a lot of that interpersonal um, berating or like um, violence, you know, but the way that it represents itself or presents itself, I should say, is more along the lines of like, oh, when's the doctor coming in? Right. Or where did you go to medical school? Like, who is the attending doctor, right? You, you may walk into the room and this is partially race and partially my gender. Okay. So you walk into the room and you may have a medical student with you and a medical student is male and Caucasian. The conversation, the eye contact, everything, yep. even yep. though I am the person who is the, of the greater expertise in the room, everything is directed towards the young man that's with me. And it is assumed that he is a physician, even though he's wearing a short white coat. That's the symbol of the student, right? Like, even though, and I have my long coat on and it says on my coat, you know, Charmaine Gregory, MD, uh, F-A-C-E-P, none of that matters. You're st- and you have on a badge that says big old physician in block letters on the bottom. It still doesn't matter because it's an automatic response. And that goes back to that conversation, that experiment that you mentioned that Oprah talks about, it goes back to that. It's like immediately the skin tone is recognized and immediately the thought is that this person cannot be intelligent. This person cannot be, um, uh, it doesn't have the expertise enough to take care of me. Like that is the immediate thought. I am going to be getting inferior care from this individual because of what they look like. Yep. Right. And it happens in corporate America. Uh, you know, the, uh, you're less likely to get the promotion because the assumption is you can't do the job. While Johnny, who is white, gets the promotion just because he doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't, you know, like he just, he can just get the promotion, you know, because it's available and it's a job that pays more money and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't understand that. And, and it's, it's a huge thing. It, you know, they, they just assume, like, for instance, Oprah has a lot of great stories about stuff that's happened to her. And everybody kind of knows who Oprah is all over the world, pretty much. You know, they, they know who she is, but she's had issues in Italy. She's had issues in France. She's, you know, just the, they look at her melanin and they go, oh, can't afford to pay for that handbag. You know, and it's, you know those kinds of things. And even going into the store. You know, I walk into stores sometimes and they go, oh, you know, they do the welcome, right? And then they direct you to the back where the sale racks are. <laughs> it's like, okay, thank you so much. You know, like, it, it, yeah. Hey, it's Dr. G. And I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to this episode. I'm so honored to have you here with me. Did you know that I can help you to get your own podcast started? With my podcasting launch course for professionals, I walk you through everything you need to know about starting a podcast. I'm with you every step of the way from sign up to launching your show with five 
episodes ready to go. There's a done for you version that's also available. If you would just rather just do recordings and leave the behind the scenes work up to us, then that one is definitely for you. But either way, we've got your back here at Fearless Freedom with Dr. G. Oh, if you already have a show and you need production services, we have monthly plans available for you. So check out the links in the episode show notes for more information. Let's get back to the show. And the thing is that the the problem is that people don't realize that this is 500 plus years of conditioning. And as a result, we literally have to decondition people. You know, I remember I grew up in the 60s and, and all these young people, 60s and 70s were joining cults. And their parents would want, you know, they would try to get them out of the cult and they would bring them home and then they'd have to decondition, deprogram them because they've been programmed into the cult. This is the same thing. (laughs) This is not rocket science over here, okay? People have been conditioned for 500 years to see melanin in the skin in a specific way. You're the servant. You must be one of the people that's here to mop the floors or you must be, you know, like that kind of thing because it comes out of that slave mentality. It comes out of these people are here to serve us. I mean, right down to, you know, even the people who are quote unquote woke, as we like to say, right? They'll they'll write to me or they'll tell me in one of my seminars, can you put a list of reading together? I'm like, no, nobody put a list of reading for me to figure this out. Go figure it out. The, the perception is that you have to be of service to them. Not that you choose to be of service to them, but that you're here to be of service. And they're not even conscious of it. It's become so ingrained in the culture that they're not conscious of it. It's like, you want to learn more. You want to do your own research. You, you don't want me spoon feeding you what you're supposed to do. Like, I, I go through that even with, with people who are working for me. They're like, well, can you put some more information in this article about um, you know, what the solutions are. I'm like, think it through people. I remember I used to have a, a teacher in junior high school in the math. It was, she was a math teacher. She's like, she put a problem on the, on the board. She go, think it through people. You know, I always remember that. I can still hear her voice, you know, and that's kind of how I feel. It's like, think it through people. I mean, seriously, you know, it's like, if you care that much, first of all, back in the day, we used to have to go to the library. You know what I mean? Like, Right. Yeah. You know, you got, you got to go buy the book and you got, you know, the whole thing. Now you just Google it, you know, it's so easy. And yet people want you to put together a reading list for them. I'm like, wow, really? Seriously? You know, and it's not to say that I I do have reading lists because, you know, I have a lot of things that I want to recommend to people to read, but the idea that you, you, like, seriously, nobody put this together for me. I read the book and put it on the, on the list if I thought it was worthwhile. You know, it's like, I don't have, you know, like, you don't have time for this. This is really important. And the thing, you know, and one of the things that I, that I really came away with, have come away with after years of doing this work is that particularly with white people, if it's not affecting them personally, it's like it doesn't exist. 
And so if we're ever going to do this work, first of all, racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. We cannot solve racism. <laughs> that, that is, you know, we have other things we have to solve, which is, you know, the, the, the survival mechanisms that we built up over centuries of having to live in environments where, you know, we're not even considered human. And so we develop some things and, and, you know, so we have our own Stockholm syndrome that we need to heal. We have, we have a lot of, you know, colorism, all of that stuff. We, that's our piece to heal. And it's like, I tell people, you know, if you have somebody who's alcoholic in the family, they send that person to AA, but they send the family to Al-Anon and they send the children to Alateen. You know what I mean? Like, but everybody needs healing. It isn't just right. like, yes. oh, if the black folks will go get some healing, then we all be okay. If the white, no, it's like everybody needs healing because everybody's sick in the society because everybody's been made sick in the society because of the dysfunction of the society and how we maintain the dysfunction. And as a result of being sick in the society, even people who would never dream, even black people and people of color who would never dream of supporting a racist system, support a racist system because they don't even realize that they're doing it. And so when people are not awake and aware and conscious and they don't have the historical context and they don't understand that they need to heal from this, it isn't about them over there, it's about we all need to heal from this. We can't do the work of shifting it. And so all we do is just on a nice platter, hand it over to the next generation. We can't keep doing that. You know, we cannot keep doing that. By the time children are three years old, they have been racialized. Three years old. I mean, it's come crazy. on. It's crazy. It's crazy. Isn't it? You know? Yeah. And so just having an awareness of the impact of that on our children. All the time we waste on this stuff. So much time, so much energy, so much money is wasted. Mm -hmm every single year because people are not allowed, they're not given the opportunity to bring forth the gifts that come through them because they have melanin in their skin. You mm -hmm. know, children who still to this day go to school and they have to share books. I remember going to school in New York City and having to share books with other kids. I mean, you know, and so, so you, you, you realize that there, there's this perception that, you know, the, the other thing I want to say before I even go into that is, is the what's wrong with you syndrome. What's wrong with you that you can't figure this out? What's wrong with you that you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstrap? Well, you know, I kind of would, but I ain't got no boots, you know, right. like, stole the boots. You know? Yes, and, correct. And the, you know? and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, no awareness of the history keeps us trapped. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Haiti is, is called one of the poorest countries in the world. Everybody's heard that. But Haiti has been paying reparations to France for setting themselves free yes. for over 100 years. Oh, yes. That, you know, yes. when you're so poor mm -hmm. that, you know, people have to send you $20, $20 a month to support yourself and your family, okay, you can't afford to pay attention, let alone pay reparations. You know, like that's ridiculous. These people are paying reparations because that is a wealthy country whose wealth has been siphoned and taken somewhere else. It's the same thing with these African countries where they all tell us, oh, you know, these poor African countries. And the these people are not poor. They've been robbed. That is a very different thing from being poor. Poverty is a state of consciousness. 
that leads you to steal from others. So I want you to tell me who's poor here, okay? Because the reality is that these countries, in particular the countries that were colonized were all along the equator. Those countries are, are super rich. First of all, they got food 365 days a year. They don't have to worry about, oh, we got to save it till next year, okay? Because, because we, you, you only got three months to grow your food, so you got to make sure that, you know, you got you to gotta preserve it and all that. You can't preserve food in the Caribbean. It goes bad. Sure but does. there's always something <laughs> growing, okay? Yes, there and is. So plenty. There's, you know, and so the perception of, of people around the, which is one of the ways and reasons that they were able to get in and do this stuff, is the perception is that there's plenty. And so when you come to visit me, I can always feed you. Because I can go in the backyard and I can get a mango and I can get, you know, and I can create a feast, right? And so, of course, you're welcome to come in. And of course, you're welcome to take some of this gold because the gold didn't have the same uh, value because there was plenty of it, you know. But when you come from a consciousness of lack, which is what happens when nine months out of the year, you look out into your world, and there isn't even a leaf on a tree. You know, your perception of the world is that enough? There's not, and if there's not enough, then you got to go get it from somewhere else. And so you go over there and you get it from them and you bring it over here and you tell people, look, look what I just brought you. And can I have your firstborn male so I can go get you some more? Okay. And so, you know, so there's this whole thing that people are just not willing to become conscious of. We can't heal without an awareness of all of that. While Absolutely. we keep looking at the world and those countries that have the gold, the silver, the diamonds, the food, all those were the countries that were colonized. Mm -hmm. You do not colonize a place that's got nothing. And, and then when you got finished with all siphoning all of that, okay, you were at the same time siphoning the HR, the human resource. Oh, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's why the labor camps. So, so you have these labor camps in people's own countries. They can't own their own land. Yeah. To this yeah. day, they cannot own that land because that's considered sovereign land. And sovereign land can never again be owned by the indigenous people of those countries. It's crazy. So what we're talking about is, is, is huge, but it's not unsolvable. It is not unsolvable. But people need to become race literate. They need to become aware and they need to become conscious. So I, I wrote, like I said, this is my, my fourth book, but I wrote a book called 11 Reasons to Become Race Literate, which anybody who is you know, 10, 12 years old can read, right? And, and it'll take you like a couple hours to read. And I wrote it short to, to quick to the point, like here's 11 reasons you need to become race literate. My second book is Eight Essentials to a Race Conversation. My third book is Speaking Race in Healthcare. And the reason I wrote that book is because all you ever hear through the media is, well, you know, those black folks, they got higher incidence of, you name it, they think we got it, right? High blood pressure, diabetes, blah, blah, blah. These are all stress-related illnesses. So, um, so anyway, I just, you know, I, I would love it if um, those of you in the audience are interested in any of these. All of my books are on Amazon, so you can just put in my name and all the books should come up um on amazon perfect and then do you have a like a website that people can go to and if you don't mind spelling it out so that just in case they don't have access to the show notes immediately that they can they can still find it 
Absolutely. Um, my website is milagrosphillips.com. So it's my name, M-I-L-A-G-R-O-S-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S.com. And um, they can also write to me at info at milagrosphillips.com. Fantastic. Fantastic. No, that's great. That's great. Because I know that this has been such a good conversation and people are going to want to definitely, you know, follow it up and look into your books and, you know, all the things that you offer. So that's great. And so we're at that part of the show where we do our tradition and it is fill in the blank. Are you ready? Are I'm ready. All right. Okay. Yay. I'm so glad. <laughs> okay. All right. So the first one is if I am fearless, I will. If I am fearless, I will live up to my commitments and I will move through the world knowing that even in spite of my fears, I can still make things happen. Awesome. The next one is to me, fearless freedom means. Fearless freedom to me is the awareness that human beings were naturally created free. The moment that you know, you're given that you come into this, this planet, right? Um, by being given birth, the first thing that happens is they cut the cord, right? That's freedom. Freedom is a human being's inalienable right. And anyone who curtails that is going counter human nature. So be aware that in spite of all the things that people have done to curtail human freedom, true human freedom cannot be curtailed. They can take away all kinds of things from you, but there is a part of you that will always be free. Awesome. Oh my gosh, that's so inspirational. I'm like, I'm like, wow, no, that's the whole visual of the cord being cut. Is this, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that really 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 good and mm. then <laughs> and then last but not least my battle cry is my battle cry is one human family we are one human family inextricably linked from one another all of our histories are linked all of our lives are linked we are one human family and with that awareness together we can do anything Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us here at the Phyllis Freedom Tribe. We truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you for all of the pearls you shared. Thank you for just being you. We really appreciate you. And, you know, again, we appreciate your time spent. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.